One of the most remarkable people ever was this dude, uh, Prince Dmitri. Dmitri Ivanovich was the son of a ruling family in the new 14th century power city called Moscow. Now, look at this. When he was a boy, when Dmitri was a boy, all Russian lands had been under the domination, the severe domination of the Mongols for 150 years. The Mongol Tatars of the Golden Horde were oppressive rulers, and that's the understatement of the week. Uh, taxation was ridiculously high. Personal freedom was limited. Th let me just put it this way. The Russian people had for generations been stunted in every way, continually trying to please their overlords out of abject fear. When Dmitri came to power as the principal of Moscow under the Mongol overlords, he decided he simply had to stand up to those bullies. First thing he did, he built a fortress that he called the Kremlin. Okay? Technically, this was illegal. It technically was not allowed under the arrangement that they had, but he believed what his tutors had taught him. Dmitri's tutors had taught him that rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God. Speaking of his tutors, young Dmitri was discipled by this guy, the church leader Alexei. He was the metropolitan of the Orthodox Church. Alexei appears, from what we can tell, to have specifically trained Dmitri in the idea, you ready, of biblical freedom. The biblical idea of freedom. Now, of course, the Mongol overlords had to react. They, they couldn't let this go, uh, so they sent an army. Here's why. Francis Schaeffer said it well, and this applies to every single situation in human history. Francis Schaeffer said, No truly authoritarian government can tolerate those who have real absolute by which to judge its arbitrary absolutes and who speak out and act on that absolute. Close quote. So the Mongols attacked. They were determined to quell this Christian-based rebellion. Now, if you had placed bets on the ensuing battle, on whom would you have put your money? On young Dmitri or on the Mongols? Who, who, on whom would you have placed your bet? The Mongols. I hope you'd put it on the Mongols. Folks, 200 years they had never lost a campaign. Ever. 200 years. But they lost this one. They lost to Dmitri at the Battle of Kulikovo. The Mongols were badly broken there. Unfair tax burdens and oppressions came to an end because Dmitri stood up to oppression, led by God, and he really was led by God. He won a shocking victory for freedom when he took a stand. Now, Dmitri and his stand are rightly celebrated by millions of Eastern Europeans to this day. You go, to, you go to Ukraine and Belarus and Russia, and they will tell you the Battle of Kulikovo is a momentous thing that has blessed their life. But I want you to look today at one of the stories that drove Dmitri to stand up for freedom because this is even a more important battle. Open your Bible, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. You'll find it right after the Corinthian letters, Galatians chapter 2. We find here an even more important set of battles, ones that occur on an eternal scale. Uh, let's read verses 1 through 10 where Titus makes a stand. Titus makes a stand. Verse 1. Paul is speaking, the Apostle Paul is speaking. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, so that I might not be running or have run the race in vain. Um, let, let's stop there for just a moment. The, the events that are being referenced here are summarized in the book of Acts. Uh, instead of reading all of Acts right now, let me, just, let me just try and summarize for you. Okay, During the 14 years that had passed since Paul had become a believer in Christ, since he'd become a Christian, huge events have happened that, that impact our text. It all began when the Apostle Peter was shown by God that Gentiles could become Christians without first being converted to Judaism, without first being circumcised. 
Then the story deepened as Barnabas and Paul began to meet with the church in Antioch, a, Jew made up, a, a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Look, beautiful story. Acts chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 24. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of the people, in context here is Jew and Gentile people, were added to the Lord. Then he, Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for Saul. That's another name for Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church, taught large numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians, Christ ones, at Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas are teaching Jew and Gentile Christians at Antioch. Then there was a prophecy that there was going to be a worldwide famine that would especially hurt the Christians in the huge Jerusalem church, all right? The Jerusalem church was the theological seat of authority for all Christianity. So the various other churches took up an offering. They took up an offering for the Christians in Judea, and that offering was taken up to Jerusalem by Paul and Barnabas. So in summary, Jews and Gentiles are in the church in Antioch. Paul's taking a non-circumcised Gentile named Titus with the offering up to Jerusalem. Okay, you got that? All right, now, with that background, let's read the rest of our text. Go, go to verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue arose because of false brothers smuggled in who came in secretly to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even an hour so the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, though, from those recognized as important, what they really were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. And since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also the one at work in me for the Gentiles. When James Cephas, uh, that's another name for Peter, it means head, when James, Kephos, and John recognized his pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. Titus makes a stand. Uh, that's the headline that begins our notes. Open your bulletin you got when you came in. Look there. Titus makes a stand and refuses re-enslavement. Christian liberty is the big issue here. Titus, Barnabas, and Paul are fighting against a typical tendency. If you haven't seen it yet in your life, you will. There's a typical tendency to, to trade our Christian liberty for re-enslavement. Zoom, zoom in on, on verse 3. Do you see what's at stake here? This is a big test. Will these believers from Antioch agree with the elements in the Jerusalem church who declare that legalistic hurdles must be cleared in order for one to be a real Christian? Specifically, will Titus, a Gentile believer in Messiah Jesus, will he agree that he must be circumcised in order to be justified before God? Freed by faith in Jesus, will Titus accept a new slavery to do works as some means to be right before God? What a spot Titus is in. Poor guy, imagine being the lone Gentile surrounded by all these Jews who know the Bible much better than you. Political correctness demanding that you give in just to keep the peace. It's like, it's like a scene from a Capcom video game, right? Even Paul is fearful about this. Look, he's concerned that he has worked for God's grace in vain, but Titus stands his ground. No, he says you're wrong. That, that is not what the Scripture teaches. That's mere traditionalism. This, this is one of those moments, folks, that has echoed through the centuries. Titus changed history. Babe Ruth was so significant to baseball that his teammate, Wade Hoyt, once said, and I quote, Every major leaguer should teach his children to pray. God bless mommy, God bless daddy, and God bless Babe Ruth. <laughs> Titus 
His stand is so important to us today. I think, I think every modern believer in Jesus Christ should pray, God, thank you for my mommy. God, thank you for my daddy. And God, thank you for Titus. We praise God for Titus because he made a stand. That takes us to our first reminder in this passage. You'll see that in your notes. Reminder, there are people who hate and or fear grace. Now, some of these are indeed sinister, like these, these false witnesses in Galatians 2. They came in for one purpose only, to spread the misery of legalism, slavery. They reject Jesus, and they don't want anyone to trust him. But I've met many others who, who, are, who are more misguided than sinister. The, the grace haters are motivated usually. The, the, the ones that, I, that are my brethren whom I appreciate, they are motivated to see all Christians stay strong to the end. They are rightly turned off by shallow Christianity. But in their positive zeal, they make a critical mistake. Here's their critical mistake. They think that our strength is what matters. It doesn't. It is Jesus' strength that makes all the difference. Those who fear grace will tell you, oh, that's just too, grace is too easy. Really? You, you think that's easy? Jesus dying on the cross? That is not easy. Most of the people who hate grace fall from grace on this point. They replace Jesus' strength with ours. Tracy Bush of our pulpit team sent me a great note about this. Look, Tracy wrote me. She said, Wayne, to me this passage reaffirmed the truth that salvation is not based on man's ability, but is found in him who is the rock, the cornerstone, the very foundation of the church. Grace haters either reject him or forget his strength. Close quote. Verse 6 has a second reminder. God doesn't respect human castes. Look at, look at verse 6. Read it again. Now, from those recognized as important what they really were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. Now, let's think about Paul's editing process. Why cover this concept here? In a passage about re-enslavement, why talk about VIPs? I think likely the answer is because hero worship brings a slavery of its own. It really does. When we see a certain person as more important before God than other people, at least when I do, I almost always set them up as an object of worship. Now, don't misunderstand. The, the idea isn't that certain people aren't more significant to you. I mean, my wife is, of course, going to be more important to me than anyone else because she has more to do with my well-being than any other human being. What Paul's attacking in verse 6 is the idea that certain people are more important before God, that they intrinsically have more worth. This is why most of the world, almost all of the world for most of history, has operated according to some form of caste system. Certain people are higher caste or more noble. It is only Judaism and biblical Christianity that recognize the counter-truth, that every single person is equal before God. That's why Christians have always been at the front of leading the charges against slavery and against limitations on personal freedom. Have, hero worship enslaves. Here, here, tell me, have you ever worshipped a hero? Um, be honest, was there ever a time, any time in your life, when, when you utterly swooned over some singer or, or some athlete, or model, or politician, or Christian leader. Uh, let's have some volunteers. Raise your hand if you ever had a hero over whom you really swooned. All right, who was your hero? Your father. Very nice. Who's, who's, your, who's your hero? Come on, I'll call on you if you don't raise your hands. Uh, yeah, let me hear one. Danny White. Danny White. Very good. Awesome feet of clay. Very good. Uh, let me have one down here. Some Rick Springfield. Oh, Jesse's girl. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> it can easily become idolatry, right? I mean, think about it. You're here. It can become idolatry. Paul reminds us never idolize people because God doesn't care about human castes. 
Uh, verse 9 has our next reminder. Christian fellowship extends beyond old categories. This is really cool. Look at verse 9. When James, Kephas, and John, recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Every year, Frisco Bible Church and Pine Cove put on a huge double week of camp in the city here. You, got, you guys do such a great job. I just learned this this last week. I didn't know this. The Pine Cove staff actually fight and lobby for a chance to be on one of the Frisco Bible Church crews. Uh, last week, just last week, I was teaching at Pine Cove at the Forge, and many of the students this year that were in the Forge class uh, had worked for camp in the city. It was fascinating to just sit back and listen to the ones who didn't get to work at Frisco Bible Church lament over how nice you are and how many goodies you give out compared to where they were. But the most fascinating comment I heard, and this was very intriguing, it came from a Pine Cove leader. She was part of the very first camp in the city, which was held here. It was called Base Camp back then. And she said to the rest of the group at one point, she said this, you newbies have no idea. It was so great in the early years. Now, I kind of tuned out, then she went on to describe why her era of camping was better. But I was arrested by the universality of her opening words. I bet you I've heard that same sentence 10,000 times in my life about all kinds of different things. You newbies have no idea. It was so great in the early years, right? And that is what makes verse 9 so amazing. James, Peter, and John could have said, who are you newbies to talk? We walked with Jesus for three years. Paul, we remember when you were trying to kill us. What are, you Johnny-come-latelys have no place at this table, right? They could very easily, we, we probably would have said that. But these leaders instead extend the right hand of fellowship. They looked beyond old categories. They were excited about new things God is doing. Those of us who have been around for a while would probably do well to relearn this lesson. We need to look past the trials and the triumphs of the past and extend our hands to the new leaders that God is going to use in the future. All God's people said, amen. amen. But look at the balancing reminder. Now, there's a balancing reminder in verse 10. Go back to verse 10. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. The reminder is that new ventures, new ventures honor prior commitments. Remember, the commitment of the Jerusalem church, and, and by this time the Antioch church, was to, was to offer support to those who were going to be in need during this coming time of severe persecution. The church leaders are zealous that Paul not forget this accepted mission in his zeal for the big new idea. Even as we get excited about new things, and we should, we mustn't neglect the prior missions that have been established by God. Again, why mention this here? I think it's because the big new thing, see if you agree with me, the big new thing can become a slavery of its own. It's certainly true in business. Let, let me just talk about, about my professional world. Pastors are notoriously desperate for the new thing. Uh, it, so much so that pastors very often lose all stability. They, they forget their prior missions. It's folly. It's chasing after the way. Guys, there is always some new formula. There is always, every day, some secret strategy, some hip idea that all the cool kids are doing. It, and while that stuff, that stuff can be useful, frankly, a lot of it is just fodder for consultants and church growth companies to justify their existence. All right? Let me, let me just tell you about a pastor friend of mine, wonderful guy, pastor friend of mine. While he is very successful in many ways, this guy is a serial church mission changer. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. At least once a year, he goes to a conference, he reads a book, and, and, and he gets an idea that, that his church just has to stop what they're doing and immediately do everything differently and change direction. It, amazingly, their church kept growing for years, which, of course, is up to God. But recently, this church plateaued. 
And he called and asked if I could go to lunch. We went to lunch together, and he, he laid out why they had, what was happening and how they'd plateaued, and he asked what I thought was wrong. And I said this to him. I, I said, buddy, I imagine people just finally wanted off the roller coaster. Close quote. Reform is great and important. And of course, all good reform can be herky-jerky at different moments. That's fine. But you don't just run wholesale after every shiny new thing without keeping grounded. That's verse 10. Speaking of reform, 499 years ago tomorrow, Martin Luther nailed his theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, and thus began the Great Reformation. Did you know, did you know that Luther saw the whole Reformation in Galatian terms? He did. He saw it as a fight for biblical freedom. The whole effort was tied to what we're studying in such a way that Dr. Martin Luther said, and I quote, Galatians is my favorite book. It is to me as my wife. Close quote. But the battle for freedom is not a one-time fight. Wittenberg wasn't the end of it, not by a long shot. You know, Luther had to, had to make a further stand at Worms. And, and there, Dr. Martin was pressured by all the, the pressure that society could bring to bear. He faced theologians at Worms and church leaders. and He even had to stand before the emperor himself. And in the face of all that pressure, Martin Luther made a stand. I want to show you what I think is a fantastically acted recreation. This is from the 2003 film Luther, and, and I want you to just notice the pressure, the pressure of this stand. Take a look. Martin Luther will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already, things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ the most perfect lawgiver ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Feel the tension? Now I bring up Luther at Worms because his life there mirrored Galatians 2. 
Just as Luther had to keep standing for biblical liberty, so Paul has to continue to stand up against spiritual oppression. Titus's victory, wonderful if it was, it wasn't the end. Re re read the next section. Go to verse 11, next verse. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law. But by faith in Jesus Christ, and we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild the system I tore down, I'll show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died for nothing. Stop there. Paul makes a stand. And his big issue, you'll find on the right side of our notes, big issue, people are justified by faith alone in Jesus alone. Now, justified here is a legal term. It's taken from Roman law. It means made right before the ruling authority. Humans are made right before God. They're justified by faith alone in Jesus alone. A few weeks ago, we discussed this great Reformation doctrine, uh, sola fide. Sola fide says that we appropriate God's salvation by trusting him, not by any works of law. The, the idea comes from many passages of Scripture, including this one, Galatians 2. Now, look at the cleverness of Paul's reasoning. This is brilliant. Watch this. Look. He uses a legal term to show that we are made legally right before God, but not by keeping any laws. Ooh, that's clever. We are made right by trusting God alone. That's what Peter knew. So did Barnabas. But when they felt pressure from the other Jewish people, they began to think and act as if a person has to keep all of the Mosaic law or else that person isn't really a Christian. That's what it means when it says that Peter couldn't eat or wouldn't eat with the Gentile Christians. You see, their food was unclean according to the Mosaic Code. Peter was acting as if he had to keep the whole law in order to be a real Christian. And thus these Gentile cheeseburgers were threatening his salvation, right? To save himself, he withdrew. A friend of mine was recently walking down Pennsylvania Avenue in our nation's capital and saw this written on the side of one of the buildings in the Justice Department, law alone can give us freedom. That is absolutely crazy, at least in an eternal spiritual sense. Law condemns. It doesn't give freedom. That's why law is important. That's why you need law. It shows right and wrong. It doesn't save this is why Peter was condemned when he puts himself under the law. That's why in verse 14, Paul says this is a gospel issue. This is foundational to the good news of Jesus Christ. No one is saved by works. In fact, 
Paul shows that we cannot keep God's law. It's impossible for any human to keep it all, a theme that will be developed later in the letter. That system is broken for sinful humans. It's torn down by Jesus who completed the Mosaic law. Now that's what prompted John Calvin, another great reformer, to say this, and this is worth remembering. Take a picture of this with your phone. Write this on your forehead. Put it on your mirror. This is brilliant. This is worth remembering. Look what Calvin wrote. He who imagines that in order to obtain justification, he must bring any degree of works whatever, cannot fix any motor limit, but makes himself debtor to the whole law. Therefore, laying aside all mention of law and all idea of works, we must, in the matter of justification, have recourse to the mercy of God only. Now catch this part. Turning away from our regard from ourselves, we must look only to Christ. For the question is not how we may be righteous, but how, though unworthy and unrighteous, we may be regarded as righteous, close quote. That is a great summary. The issue is not how we can be righteous by keeping God's law. That's impossible. The issue is how we may be justified, be found righteous in Jesus. That's why Paul wraps up the section with this brilliant conclusion. Read it again. Let it, let it seep into your soul. Go to verse 19. Go back to verse 19, <clears throat> if I can find mine. Verse 19. There it is. For through the law, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died for nothing. Jesus died, completing the need for the bilateral conditional limited Mosaic covenant. We who have faith in him are reckoned as dead in him. We, we're dead to the law. We're dead to our need for good works, just as Jesus died. Our only necessary work is to believe in Christ. Anything else nullifies the grace of God. And then, as Jesus rose from the dead, we are resurrected in him. We are alive to God forever, made right with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. If that isn't worthy of praise, you people need to see a coroner. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah. Amen. But before we start the party, this section also contains some reminders. Look at our first reminder. The legalism party doesn't party. Legalists don't want you to enjoy the freedom of your justification in Jesus. You know what they want? They always want you to feel depressed and fearful, wondering whether you have done enough. Sean Lazar is an acquaintance of mine. He's a theologian. He speaks and writes about Galatians 2 and our need to live free. I want you to look what he recently said. Sean shared this. He said, every week, every week, I get an email or a call from a Christian who has become absolutely burned out trying to find assurance that they are justified. They're burned out because when they ask their pastor or friend how to be sure, they were told to look to see if they have genuine faith. They're told to look for signs in their life that indicate they have really believed. They're asked, did they really make a heart commitment? Are they really relying on Jesus? Are they still sinning? Are their thoughts purer than before? Did they feel real sorrow? Sean concludes, instead of leading to assurance of justification, such morbid introspection leads to monstrous uncertainty. It leads to conscientious people, and this is true for every honest person, it leads to conscientious people being filled with doubts and fears of hell. It leads to getting burned out, close quote. The reason the legalism party doesn't party is their eyes are fixed on themselves. Morbid introspection just shows you more of you, and your justification doesn't come by you. It comes through Christ alone. As John Calvin said, focus on Jesus, and then you can start to enjoy your secure eternal life. Of course, 
Even wise people need to remember to be reminded to look to Jesus. After all, the next reminder, look at it in your text, good people can get off track. Even Barnabas falls for the pressures of, of legalism. It's so sad. You know, the book of Acts, what we read, Barnabas was called a good man. His very nickname, Barnabas, is a fun Greek nickname. means son of encouragement. And yet here he's being decidedly discouraging. And by the way, this happens in every generation. The battle goes on and on. For example, this guy, wonderful pastor named Theodore Beza. He succeeded John Calvin as the preacher and theologian in, in Geneva during the Reformation. This guy's brilliant. And, and his work has blessed so many. In fact, your forefathers were hugely influenced by the Geneva Bible and the notes that Beza wrote in the, in the margins of the Geneva Bible. Quite frankly, you cannot be overstated how much of an impact they had on early American history and thought. And yet, even this good guy could get off track. Look at this. John Calvin, his teacher, you read his quote. He rightly summarized scripture by saying that one finds spiritual confidence by looking to Jesus, Right? Since we are justified sola fide, the Christian can be at peace. Beza later overturned that. And he said, oh no, the person needs to look at his own life and his own works in order to find any confidence in his justification. He knew, he knew he was disagreeing with Calvin. He knew he was disagreeing with Paul in Galatians, but he got off track. That's why you should check everything I say. Everything anyone says with the Bible. Because even good people can be swayed by legalism. Here's another reminder. Confrontation can be bold and brotherly. Peter's error was public, right? Thus the confrontation needed to be public. But even, even as Paul reamed out Peter's bad theology, the rest of the Bible makes very clear. You can look at all the other mentions of them in Scripture. They were dedicated brothers. This is cool. There was no hint of hard feelings after this correction. Think of it like your family. How do you fight with your brother? It is usually harder than with anyone else, right? Right? You, you fight differently with your siblings, <laughs> right? But after the fight is over, they are always and ever will be your stinky little brother. Sorry, my brother listens to these. Your wonderful little brother, right? <laughs> A wise pastor named Tom Nelson uh, once told me, and I quote, Wayne, if you guys aren't yelling at each other in your elders' meetings, you're not really working like brothers. John Newton was a British pastor. He did many wonderful things, including write the hymn Amazing Grace that we sang earlier. John Newton wrote a letter, and it was so good that it was preserved and republished as an article. It's called On Controversy. I really hope you will look it up and read it. Uh, it's, it's very wise. Let me just show you one section of On Controversy. This relates to bold and brotherly confrontations. Newton says this. If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, the words of David to Joab concerning Absalom are very applicable. Deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Amen. And in order to be happy in Christ, we must catch the reminder in verse 19. Look at that. The believer in Jesus is dead to the law. Now, now God's going to develop this idea a lot further in the book. For now, please note this. We who trust Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we are dead to the law as an operative force in our lives. Dee McKay and her sister were on their way to put flowers on the grave of their deceased father, and they decided, cool idea, they decided to take their kids along. So Dee and her sister wrangled up all their kids, and, and Dee wrote of that visit. Look what she wrote. She said, before visiting my father's grave, we stopped for flowers. My young nephew asked if he could pick out a helium-filled balloon instead. 
permission was granted, and he ran off as we perused the floral offerings. When the boy reappeared with a big silver balloon, no one had the heart to challenge his selection, but I do wonder what the other cemetery visitors thought when they passed my father's grave, adorned with a balloon saying, get well soon. <laughs> Christians, we have died to the law. Paul means literally the Mosaic Code and its requisite circumcision and food laws, but the idea can easily be broadened to include all legal codes for salvation that people think of. We are quite passed away to that. We are in a new existence beyond legalism. Now, occasionally, teachers are going to pop up, and they seem to be speaking from that traditionalistic world of our past, and they're going to parade around on the grave of your old self, and they're going to be saying, get well soon. No! We don't want to get well. We are dead to the law, and that's good because we're in a much better place. Amen? Which takes us to our next reminder. The believer in Jesus is alive to God. Read verse 19 again. This time I'd like to read it in the New American Standard Version just because of one word. Take a look. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Let me explain why I think that's important. Th this verse is critical to a proper understanding of Paul's theme of liberty because this highlights the purpose of our freedom. Our freedom in Christ, our freedom from the law, which enables life in Christ, is a life to God. It is a life lived as God's own children. The, the Greek construction is really important. Take a look. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath. Okay, this is, this is, this is going to look a little confusing. It's not. It's really cool. Let me just walk you through it. This is fascinating, okay? Uh, the Greek construction, hena uh, theozeso. Hena, when you see hena, that always introduces a clause of purpose so that tells us this is going to be important. This is a summary of our life purpose. And the word order is also emphatic. Okay, take a look. Do you see how God is before the, before the verb? Now, that's weird in English. In, in Greek, it literally reads, so that God, I might live. But in the Greek, it makes sense. Look, it especially highlights God's ongoing role in our free living. The living comes after God in the sentence because our living is based on God in reality. But theos, God, is written in the dative case here. Okay, don't be on horse by that. It's just, it's just really cool. Let me, let me show you. Dative, dative is a fancy grammar term. It had a wide range of meaning in Greek. In English, we, we usually use dative for an object. A dative is the noun to which something is done, the noun toward which things move, all right? So, so for example, if I say Rizzo hit the ball, which I haven't said much in the World Series. Anyway, um, if, if I say, love Rizzo, if I say Rizzo hit the ball, ball is dative. In English, we call it a direct object, okay? That's the thing toward which the action is moving. That's the thing toward which something is done. All right, similarly, look at our text. It seems that theos here is a direct object. God is the ball upon which we fix our eyes, right? Thus, I prefer the translation, live to God. We have been freed from the law for this purpose, so that we can live to God. He is the focus of life. This, this is incredibly complex and brilliant. Now look, Paul is saying that we act, we move toward God. But remember the word order? He puts God before living in the sense to show that even our acting is empowered by God. It's as, if, it's as if Rizzo hit the ball, but the ball actually empowered Rizzo and made it possible for him to hit it. That's so cool. God empowers us to live, and he makes himself the object of our living. That's why Paul put Theos in the dative and before living. Verse 20 carries the idea forward. One last reminder buried in the narrative. Reminder. 
the believer is not just empowered. The believer is indwelt by God. Christ lives in me. In me. About 100 years ago, an American businessman, exceptional man named J.F. Strombeck, he, he, he wrote this. He commented on this. Look what he said. The popular idea that Christ goes alongside the believer does to lead does not adequately describe his presence and work. He is in, not merely with, all who believe in him. The divine way of life is not imposed on the believer from without. It flows out from within as naturally as a spring, close quote. Isn't that great? I liked it so much I put it in your notes. God himself lives inside the Christian soul. He shepherds us from within, not just from without. R read with me Jesus' great statement on this. John chapter 7, line by line. Let's read it together, verse uh, 38. Ready? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen. God's effervescent indwelling sets us up for chapter 3, which we'll study next time. For now, let's just, let's just respond to this awesome truth. If you are a believer in Jesus, listen. The truth is that God dwells in you permanently, period. That truth doesn't change based on how you feel. It is not affected by your good or bad works. Oh, your sanctification can suffer. Oh, yeah, God can spank you, and he will because he loves you. Your glorification can change because you lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But your justification is secure in God's hands. You are in him and he is in you forever. Can we show some gratitude for that? Let's applaud the Lord in thanks. And for you, for you who are not yet Christians, for what are you waiting? Your justification awaits and it only... It only comes to fruition by faith. Pray with me. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for anybody studying with me that is not a believer in Jesus. God, I beg you to open their eyes. I beg you to do what you do and draw them to you. Let them see just how much you love them and how you've provided. Let them get their eyes off themselves. That is a death trap. And get their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Friend, listen, Jesus died on that cross, willingly gave his life because he loves you. He paid the price to fulfill the law that you can never do. I don't care how nice your mom says you are, you can't do it. You're sinful, just like me. But God made a way for you to have a relationship with him forever, to be justified, made right before him, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Trust him right now. Just say, I believe in Jesus. I receive what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. I don't trust anything else, not myself, anything but Jesus. If you just trusted Jesus Christ, raise your hand. Move toward the ball. Act on your faith. Good for you. Amen. Lord, I pray for all these who are believers in Christ, that you will bless us, that we might live out who we are, that we might live free, that we might do what Dimitri did and Titus did and Martin Luther did and Paul did, that we might make a stand for freedom. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.